Bismillahirrahmanirrahim wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Peace and love everybody. I'm Brother Ali. It's the Traveler's Podcast. Welcome back. If you're new here, I'm glad that you're here. We do this podcast because of the fact that I've been really blessed and fortunate and uniquely so to live a life that in a lot of ways is really extraordinary. And I, what I mean by that is that the things that I've given my life to, the engagements and the activities and the affairs that I've spent my life doing are all in their own way really extraordinary. They're just not normal. That's what I mean. Uh, they feel connected and they, they're inspired by something that's outside of what the confines of my circumstances are. So on the spiritual path, I became a Muslim in the 90s in the inner city and became an imam, have really done the role of a pastor and a lecturer and an educator and a community builder. And then I also did community activism and organizing. And I also have been part of, you know, hip hop culture and art and an independent kind of slice of the industry. And this has brought me in contact with so many people who that's what we share. There's like something about them that feels connected and feels driven and inspired beyond the confines of what their context says that they're supposed to be. This is what I share with the Muslim scholars that I know and the artists that I know, the organizers that I know, is that there's something in our life that somehow has given us ability and opportunity and permission and just courage and tenacity to do something that's not what's directly in front of us. Ari the Rugged Man is my guest this week and he's absolutely one of those people. And one of the things that I find that's unique about art is that art is so profoundly human. But one of the things that it always has done for me is that it just reveals something about the human experience and process of what's going on in the artist. And when that happens, people can bond with each other and really grow a deep sense of love and affinity and affection between them just based on that really deeply human thing. You know, it's one of the things that Dave Chappelle always says, it's like, man, you know, how many white Muslim albinos are out there making dope rap music? One, you're the only one. You never get to rock a crowd of your own people. You have no people, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, but that's really real. But he's like, man, but when people see you, even though nobody is seeing themselves completely when they see me, he's like, somehow the people who can see you, it's because they're looking through the lens of their humanity. And that's a very, very beautiful thing. And so, man, Ari the Rugged Man, if you were to listen to his music, especially in the 90s, he used to go by Crustified Dibs. This is a guy who grew up in Long Island. Ari's father was from New York City, and he was in Vietnam. And he was a war hero. He was shot down and was in a body cast for almost a year. He came back from the war and he started a family and he really struggled to, to, to have a family and to, to work hard at it. And he was like a tough military dude that also was really deeply rooted specifically in black music and black culture as a white man from New York in the 60s and 70s. But in Vietnam, he was exposed as so many were to Agent Orange. This is something that, you know, the U.S. government was spraying on Vietnam because the Vietnamese were using the canopy of the jungle in Vietnam to fight this huge army. I mean, they were fighting the greatest army in the world and they were doing it 
like in guerrilla warfare style, and they whipped America's behind. Like America, it seemed like it should have been a quick, easy thing, and it absolutely was not. This is like really well-documented American history. But anyway, so what they did is they discovered this substance that if they could just fly by in planes and helicopters and basically melt all of the vegetation in the area so that the Viet Cong weren't able to use the canopy of the jungle to hide and to do their like covert maneuvers. But this stuff, not only did it kill all the vegetation, it also killed people. And it got deeply embedded in the cells and in the DNA of not only the Vietnamese people, but also the soldier, the American soldiers that were there fighting. So Ari's dad had his elder sister, and then he had Ari, and then he had two more children. He had a, a daughter by the name of Didi, who was born not being able to speak or walk. And she died when she was 25. And then they also had a younger uh, brother who died when he was a baby. Then the sister who, Ari's elder sister had children and her children showed up with after effects as well. And so one of those children passed away. So this is a man who came back from war, who signed up and went to war when he was young, Ari's dad, um, Staff Sergeant uh, John Thorburn. He went in and fought and did what he was supposed to do. And while he was there, he realized like, man, our country is not what I've been raised to believe that it was. And so he had a change of heart. And like I said, he got shot down and came back and went to Long Island and started a family. And his son ended up being this rapper who is profoundly blessed and gifted and unique, just one of the most unique MCs that you could ever see or hear or experience. And he got love early on from all of the greats. I mean, he was, you know, him and Biggie were friends. We're making records together. We're driving around, coming up in the game together. Um, but so many people around him went on to be major celebrities, major stars, like the whole cohort of artists that he was in. You can see videos online of him and Method Man are best friends and uh, Red Man and Mob Deep and all of these people that went on to be mega stars. That was his cohort of peers. And R.A. came up and was just wilding. And he was literally blackballed from the industry. They're like, this guy is amazing. All the artists love him, but you'll never work in this town again kind of thing. And so he kept pressing on and kept doing it, the music exactly the way that he wanted to. And he's become somebody that can tour all over the world to sold out audiences just literally doing it the way that he wants to do it. And when you hear his music, especially when he was younger, I mean, his music is wild. I mean, he is just saying some of the wildest stuff ever. And you'll hear in our conversation that so much of his interest in art is different than mine. You know what I'm saying? Like he is looking for, he's, I think he says when we're talking, he said degenerate. I'm interested in the delinquency of the human being. And that is something to know about who we are. And it is something that binds all of us. Like there's definitely value in that, even from my perspective. You know what I'm saying? My perspective is like, I'm always looking for the angelic nature in the human being and looking to point at that and celebrate that. You know, but we're so different in a lot of ways. But there's something about the human being and the artist that really, man, I, I just couldn't love this guy more. You know, I don't always agree with him. He doesn't always agree with me. There's points in the conversation that, that where that happens. And it's like, you know, it's very obvious. But man, just a little bit more context before we jump into this interview. But R.A. spends a lot of time touring in Europe. And 
he ended up falling in love with a woman and having children in Berlin. And so he lives a lot of his time in Berlin now. Seeing him as a dad is a really incredible thing. And he's in a situation today when we recorded this where his kids were sick. And so he said he had been up since 5 a.m. and we were messaging each other all day. And he's like, yo, I got to run these errands. I got to do this. I got to do that. And he hit me maybe an hour before the interview. He's like, man, I got to run out. My, my kids are trying to go to bed and there's something that they need. I have to get it, man. I might be a few minutes late, but I'm, I'm not going to break my word. And so he showed up for this interview and pulled out the laptop and like laid down on his bed. And we chopped it up, man. So very grateful to be able to connect and to just be able to share this side of such a dynamic, unique, such an alive, creative, incredible, fearless person. So it's just really dope. We're brought to you as always by the Zakat Foundation and also by BetterHelp online therapy platform. Enjoy this episode of the Travelers Podcast. Man, I was just thinking about the first time that we really kicked it, you welcomed me into your home. Like we had talked, we had met, you know what I'm saying? And and I, But the first time that we really spent time together, you flew me to New York and I stayed at your crib in Harlem. Yeah. Well, a lot has changed since then because uh, I was the single, you know, you know, I wasn't a father yet. So my place was a mess. And uh, I didn't even have clean towels for you. I, I was going to run to the dollar store across the street. But right now, uh, you know, I got a six-year-old and a five-year-old. And their mother has, like, this nice house and clean towels and clean beds and clean sheets. So if you're in Germany, Berlin, she'll take care of you and, and make up for you having to stay at my uptown apartment all grimy and dirty and nasty. And you 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 soldiered it out. You trooped it out. You know, you... Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Man, I was just grateful, man. I was grateful to to you know, anytime somebody like doesn't know you and they welcome you in in their home, like you brought me in your house and treated me like a family member. And it was really dope being with you because you were living in Harlem and not like gentrified Harlem, like you were really in uptown. And like being able to like walk around with you and everybody know you and loved you. And, you know, you just talking to everybody. I was in Harlem for 12 years. A lot of people don't know that because always on the records, you know, it's it's uh, Long Island, Long Island. Because, you know, I, I hate when people leave Long Island and they be like, you know, I'm from Brooklyn now. I'm from, you know, so I always try to rep that Long Island, you know. So, so but I was uptown for 12 years. I, I was in Jamaica, Queens for six years. I, I only lived in Long Island till about 97, I think, or 98. Then I left town and I was I was uh, every other part of New York forever, you know. But yeah, Harlem was my home, my home home. And the only thing that took me out of Harlem yeah. was uh, I had babies in Berlin, Germany. So 2016, hopped on a plane and, and had to, you know, in order to be near my babies, I had to uh, pack pack up and get rid of my spot on 145th. And, and uh, now I'm <laughs> Ludwig lost. You know, I'm, I live in these weird uh, German towns you know <laughs> man I, I live in i live in salajek uskudar <laughs> i went from adam clayton I, I, powell to uh uh <laughs> to lugli glashli slaw to Karl marx i went from <laughs> you know malcolm x hey, boulevard hey, right here to Karl marx ali up the block you know so how's your german 
it's not as good as it should be. You know, my kids, my, my kids are fluent in English and German and, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, you know what? A lot of you rappers have like these amazing skill for memorization, you know? And that's one of my flaws was it ta- it takes me way longer to memorize verses, to memorize like, like I remember uh, I bring this up because Mac Lethal was telling a story when he went on on Ellen DeGeneres and like on right before he got on the plane they were like no nah, we have to do the rap about this instead and and the super speed rap and he had to like write the rap on the plane and memorize all these super speed bars to do it on Ellen the same day and I was like I would have told her no if I had the rhyme memorized and worked out and ready to kill it. You know, I I just don't have that skill where within an hour I could change a rhyme and memorize a million bars. Like, so I don't know. That's going into languages. The same thing with memorizing languages, like a whole entire language. I just don't have that 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 fast memorization skill. I don't have that. You know, so it takes me even when a, a new album comes out. I gotta like I'll do the concert five six times and still be messing up the words until I find. Then after I've done the songs, you know, I know the words. You know, but it takes me. It's not like, you know, I'm not, the memorization isn't, isn't amazing, you know, so. That's crazy to hear that because you're, I mean, notoriously like one of the most dense writers, you know what I'm saying? Like there are people that put a lot of syllables in a bar, but like, especially in preparing for this, like I really went through a lot of your lyrics and like was just listening in a different way. And you know, there are certain songs with certain cats that like are like choppers and there's times where like, we're moving over here and then I'm moving over there and then I'm running up and down and then I'm going all around. Like there's times where it's just like there's a lot of filler. And you know who I'm doing when I do that voice. I'm not going to say their name, but I'm saying then there are people like you and Tech 9 and Twista. Like there are people who there's a lot in the bar, but also what's there's so much content. Like every word is there. Not There's no filler. So it's crazy to hear you say that because you write so, is so dense. No, it's just memorization. Eventually I get it. You know, it's just I'm not I'm not super speed memorization but writing but but i'm glad you see you're a lyricist so you could see that the thing is sometimes when you do a fast rap all people hear is a fast rap kind of like somebody that doesn't listen to reggae all they could hear is a reggae accent you know they don't they don't know how to break down a bar you know so yeah if if i got a dope flow and it's contentless i'll sacrifice the dope flow and be like i'm not going to do that dope flow if i can't jam pack it with content and have a way to say it where it means something differently you know where a lot of people be like that flow's dope so i'm just gonna say a bunch of words you know and i, I you know yeah you know i think maybe one or two bars in my life i've done that and i've have had so many bars i go yeah you know that sounded too good just keep that but it's very 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 rare that i do that i gotta make sure to throw a little content and you know where we learned that from g-rap g-rap would have like every syllable was a painted picture and a what the f-, you know so, so when you when you're 12 years old listening to that how could you go back and be like yeah run gun jun you know like and just it, some words that mean nothing that that flow good like no you you want to keep it on a level where like every syllable is a is something and even if it's not a painted picture it's an odd way to say something or something something you know that's what we do that's what that's that's what we love and that's where our passion is so so we're not impressed with just, oh, look, we did something fancy with the rhythmic, you know, thing, you know? So, yeah. Do you do you write them on paper? Like you write them in a notebook? My whole entire life I did. 
and I had a little tape recorder, you know, hand-held uh, tape recorder, and I used to just record the flow into that and write on paper. And uh, lately with kids and all of this stuff, I, I started and losing notebooks, and uh, you know, I started typing things into the computer, and then I could uh, email them to myself, so now I have a backup. It's just a lot easier than the one rhyme book. And do you remember the days, I remember walking through the mall, 13, 14 years old with a book of rhymes and writing. And then and then you're at the food court and you're like, where's my notebook? Oh, and you're running around and oh, yeah. I lost my notebook. And, and and yeah, I remember one time I lost a notebook. I was we were visiting some girls in like Brooklyn and like we were at the food court and I flipped it and the girls thought I was like a crazy person. Ah, you know, because I didn't even care about the at this point. I'm like, oh my notebook. You know? and, and I found it though. It was like I left it at the at the count. They had it at the count. I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> but yeah, you know, now you type them in your computer, you email it to yourself, you have that one. And then then and now you know you got a little, you know, uh you can take a little vocal note of the flow in your phone if you need be, you know, this, that, you know. And also now we have so much access to recording our rhymes where back in the day you didn't have you know it was like a process to go to the studio like it, you had to buy the two inch reel yeah. you had to really it was like you know and you had to pay the engineer and the studio time and like when you went to the studio it was serious so you weren't recording a million verses you could only record uh what you could afford you know <laughs> so. it's a trip man i remember what when Biggie and Jay-Z were talking about, like, I think, so like Biggie didn't write his rhymes, but that was not really known until Jay-Z came along because people were like, he's not writing these rhymes. And he's like, well, no, that's what Big did. But Jay-Z was saying like, I'm, I came into the game already rich. So like I can be in the studio. So the second I think of the rhyme, I'm in a studio. So I just record the part of the rhyme that I just thought of, which I'm like, man, I, I, I'm so grateful that he said that part. Yeah, but people get mad at me, but I was with Big before he was yeah. when he yeah. was writing rhymes on paper. And I've said that, yeah. you know, and they were all always hate. No, 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 I, I was. We we went to the studio and he used to write his rhymes on paper. And then um I think Clark or somebody that was closer to everybody, uh, was it Clark Kent? One one of them said he said the opposite of what you said. Now I can't verify any of that, but he said that he saw Jay doing it and then Big did it after Jay did it. That's what that's what I think Clark said. Uh. But, but no, don't mark my word on that one. All I could go by is my own experience. And I'm talking, my guess would be 92, 93. And Biggie was still writing in his notebook at that time. But at some point, okay. I know for a fact he did switch up and not write anymore. And Big stopped writing. I don't know what caused that when it happened, but I remember really young in the in the career, he was writing in his notebook. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the famous, like everybody's got accolades and everybody's got their like things that people have said about them. But Big said about you, I thought I was ill. Yeah. <laughs> he said that about you. Yeah, 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 yeah. But also, um, you know, Big thought I was a crazy person too, you know? So I thought I was the illest. Thinks I'm a crazy person, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, but nah, nah, nah. Big, big was a. Uh, uh, if you talk to Buck Wild and Track Masters and all of these guys, we were all there in the studio. All that they're they're all first eyewitnesses. All you get is secondhand stories by a million people, and we were all in the studio together. We all were like, you know, we drive around in the car, play each other demos. We'd be on the phone all night, all of us, you know. Like it was before the internet, so you know. 
you'd leave a studio session, you call Biggie up, talk for hours, you call Easy LP up, talk for hours. We didn't like have the, we, all we had was phone calls, call, call, you know, I remember, you know, uh, Easy LP, he just started making beats and he went on to do, you know, like just get money for Biggie and Blood Money and all those records. And and Buck had just, this was before LP ever even made a beat. Buck had just started making beats. And we was in the studio with Big. And I think Buck was making beats for like six months. And, you know, Lord Finesse was making for like, oh, you making beats now, Buck? And then Buck went on to make beats. Like I was in the cut with all of these guys. LP gave me a cassette tape. Like, yo, I'm making beats now. I'm like, come on, get out of here. And he gave me a beat. And it was a couple interesting beats. I said, yeah, pretty good. And he ended up selling a couple of those beats to uh, the Artifacts. And uh, the songs ended up doing pretty good. I said, okay, okay. LP's doing his thing. But uh, yeah, but then, you know, he went on to do, make some classics. And oh, a lot of those guys, are getting, but I love the tone. You know, uh, he was uh, track masters. And he had, I think he had did a Chub Rock album. Not, I think he did. He had done a Chub Rock album, which... Didn't get high accolades, you know, because the album yeah. before that Chub Rock album was like a, a masterpiece. The Hitman Howie T record was well, was the all one. of the Hitman Howie T and Chub records were classics. So the one, yeah, the yeah. album the Chub Trackmasters did had some good songs on it, but it just wasn't. It had that Yabba Dabba Do one I liked a lot, you know, uh, Yabba Dabba Do. Yeah, look at the size of his chest, but it never does. Yeah, I don't remember the rhyme, but but. But uh, uh, yeah, and then and Mona Scott was the manager, and they had this ratty ass uh, room in on Bleecker Street, and I think MC Shan with uh, Snow and Informer had a little office there too, and it was like you know, and they had a broken ass stereo with the because you try to play a cassette and the buttons was all broken, and you never know what's gonna happen. Mona Scott's one of the most successful women in hip hop history, you know. She she she's and she's still ma managing Missy today, if I'm not mistaken, and and. Uh, Trackmasters went on to one of the greatest resumes. Like, you know, they've worked with every, you know, iconic artist ever. And a lot of people diss Trackmasters, but, you know, they did L Street Blues. They, you know, they did a lot of great Nas records. They they did like a lot, Kane records. They did a lot of great hip hop stuff. So, you know, you know, it was a lot of history back then, early 90s. We was all in the game coming up together, you know, so. Akinelli was the man. He was he was on he was in the studio with us all the time. I used to go to his crib in Left Rack. We thought he was the one, but you know the label. What happened with him was? Do you remember the I Love Her song, the big controversy? This might oh, of course. Be, so, so it's not before yeah. your time, right? You, you you're close enough to my age, right? But but uh, so I Love Her. It was a record where he made a joke record about his. He got a girl pregnant. He he kicked in the belly. He didn't want to have have you know, have the baby. But he's like, yeah, I set her up, but I still love her. It was a joke record. But it, the source wrote like a two or three page scolding review about misogyny and how he's, you know, this. And so Interscope was already making tons of money on Snoop and Dre and they chickened out. They got scared of the Akinelli song because of that piece because this is when the source magazine still had a lot of, you know, power. But then he went on and made the uh, sex anthem. Put it in your mouth, your motherfucking mouth. And that, they, him and Jessica, and Jessica was managing, if I'm not mistaken, I believe she was managing Funkmaster Flex. I know she was like close, tight with Funkmaster Flex, but 
she, he put out the record with Jessica, and I think the thing sold like four hundred thousand copies independently, and uh, the record was like number one on a lot of things. But so he, he made he they made quite a few dollars on that independently. So it was good that Interscope shit it on his masterpiece, Vagina Diner, produced uh, by a Large Professor was a masterpiece that album that was up there with all the best New York albums, you know? So absolutely. You know, it's wild, man. Like that was a time when, you know, that was a still like a really a time when I think hip hop was still really emerging. Like for us for those of us that started following it in the early 80s, you know what I'm saying? By the time we got to like the late 80s, early 90s, I guess is that time, it felt to us like hip hop has been around my whole life, but it was still really new. And there was still so much energy around, like the person on the mic is supposed to say something that we're not allowed to say. Like whoever is on the microphone, they're supposed to say something wild. They're supposed to say something. Like that was so much of the the magnetism to it. And I think it still is to a certain degree. But when you take those times away and then you listen to those records, it's like without the context of what New York was like, what hip hop was like, what media was like, you know, the, the stuff that they're you know, so many people were making underground music as like a response to what was going on in the mainstream. It's really strange to hear that music out of context. And so many people during that time were just saying, I mean, myself included, like I said stuff on my first records that I think people might go back now and listen to and be like, I can't believe Brother Ali said that, you know? But they're, like that was really the energy of the time. But that's the problem with art, period. People don't mm. know history. They don't have context for anything, you know? So mm. so if there was an intricate flow for a time, they don't understand how intricate it was. If somebody did something that no one ever did before a certain time, they don't yeah. understand. And it's the same thing with film. You know, they'll look at something like Hitchcock's Psycho and be like, eh, what's that? That's boring, you know, but, because they don't understand. Like, at that moment, the shock, and it was shocking. It's not shocking, right. but no, it was meant to, like, destroy your brain when that that movie came out nothing was made like it ever so it's the same thing where in the, like the era you're talking about the early 90s you were coming off the 80s with these typical gores and like the oh prince is too sexual and this person's too sexual and the catholic church and dungeons and dragons are bad and satan's coming for you and and don't say this don't say that ban these movies you know so they were that's what we grew up on when we were nine eight ten you know seeing this so in the 90s it was exactly what you said. It was a rebellion. Like, yo, we can say what the yeah. fuck yeah. we want. And we're going to say the foulest, most right. horrible, horrifying yeah. words that could possibly come out of our mouths. What? And now, yeah, now people look back and go, oh, they said gross things. No shit. <laughs> we did that on purpose. You yeah. know, it was purpose to shock. And, 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 and everybody was rebelling on their own level. So if you look at like... You know, the, the particular tree that I come from is like the public enemy, ex-clan. You know what I'm saying? It's like, we're going to say things about the political establishment. We're going to change our religion. Like, we're going to become Muslims or we're going to become five percenters or, you know, black Hebrew Israelites or something like that. That was our version of it. And then you had the gangster rappers that were like... I'm gonna I'm gonna sell drugs in my records. I'm gonna murder people. And then you had other cats that were just you know thinking of the wildest stuff on the mic. That's why when you were saying that for Biggie to have said like I thought I was the illest, you know that's when Biggie is like smacking babies at the christening, you know what I'm saying smacking nuns and I'm doing this to the Virgin Mary and you know what I mean. There's like there, there's something about that like rebellious 
spirit that it's not disconnected. And that's why, yeah, it's a trip, man. Like so much of art, like that's why they, you have the art, but you also have art history that that's really necessary to really appreciate it because you have because it gives you that fuller context. It's really, it's amazing, man. I know you were saying that your dad gave you historical context for black music. Yeah, I came up in a household of, you know, soul music and black music. That was my father's whole, you know, he didn't he didn't like the Beatles. He didn't like, you know, any of that stuff. He, right. You know, strictly soul and black music and doo-wop and all of that. So definitely that came from my father. That's where I learned black culture and black music. And, and uh, you know, my dad was just like this cool, hip street dude. He was like a rough, tough, cool. Like anybody that met my father was like, yo, that's like the coolest guy I ever met in my life. It, like it, he was just like the coolest dude, you know? So I miss him a lot. But yeah, yeah, when rappers met my dad, they're like, yeah, all raised for Like nobody even, like that's like the coolest dude ever. <laughs> like no one ever met my dad. Like, well, no, no, no. When my dad was in his wild years, I'm sure people met him. Like, I don't f with that guy, but you know, <laughs> if he was cool with you and he you were cool with, he was the coolest, you know. But if you was a if you was a, a enemy, he maybe wasn't so cool. But <laughs> I love the conversation you're talking about because it's something that I talk about often too, as well. Because like, even I talk, you know, uh, talk about the films of John Waters, you know, because you know, uh, gay rights is a big thing now, and you know. Uh, this was like 69, 71, 72, 74. He was making these really uh, transgressive, rough, you know, foul, ugly uh, um, art pieces. They were art, you know, at John Waters and, and doing things that, you know, and being a, you know, just being just all the balls in the world and being as the, the gayest man on the planet and being proud of it, not caring. And, uh, you know, I tweeted something like a couple years back where I was like, yo, he literally had Divine, a, a dog, poop out its ass. And Divine, it's a one-take shot. It's not a trick shot. Picked the shit up and actually ate it. And I said, he, you know, the man John Waters made, take, you know, anything is art. Who decides what art is? He had a... a, a transvestite big uh, yeah transvestite he wasn't transvestite transvestite divine famous transvestite eat shit out of a dog's ass and it was art and everybody swallowed me up on my my timeline like that's not art you sick people you sick you sick you're sick you're sick but who's to decide is that art or not you, you know what i mean but in john waters world pink flamingos was a masterpiece to, to a lot of people so it's just i like discussions about you know, uh, degeneracy, uh, you know, degenerates or, or is it art or is it not? Or who decides what, you know? So, yeah. I think it's also really good, like for, because so often like we're wrapped up in our own time, like we're products of our time and our environment and our, our thing. And it's so easy to lose that if you don't have a historical context to be able to look at somebody from another time it, at like an artist to see what well, like, okay, so most people were doing this and this person stood out in this way. You know what I'm saying? So like there was a time that like most people were just going along with the thinking of their time, not even realizing that. And it's it's a really good thing to be able to look at our own circumstance and say like, okay, what are the dominant like narratives of our time? And, and which of my opinions have I actually arrived at on my own? And in what ways am I just part of the time that I'm living in? 
And there might not necessarily be anything wrong with that, but I, I think it's really easy to get lost in that. Well, well, that's exactly the truth. It's all perspective. And and I, I the new record I'm working on too is because I've changed so much of my own thinking. It's exactly what you said. And mm. everything you just said is on a song I'm working on. It's like, we're, we were raised in this era you know, where we were supposed to be like this. And, you know, we were indoctrinated and pledge allegiance. We didn't even know that was weird when we were four years old, five years old. Pledge allegiance to the flag. That shit is disgusting. I pledge allegiance. Have putting your kid out there, putting his hand on his heart. I pledge allegiance to a country. Get the fuck out of here. But but back then, you're little kids and, and you're told to do it. You know, you know what I mean? And, and but, um, yeah, and not to go back to the John Waters thing, is like, like, yeah, if you look, back to that now you go yeah that's just disgusting but at the time you're talking about a man that was a homosexual in america and he comes out and says you know what i'm doing whatever i want you know I, I, and he put these sick twisted images on a state on on the screen and didn't care what anybody thought you know and then somebody looked back and act like you know they, they don't understand the context of of the time or something like that but going back to where we was at, what you just said, yeah, like like a lot of people say, like, like okay, good good example of what you're talking about. Um, there's this thing where they go, oh, what's the guy's name? High Res. Do you know, you know High Res? I don't think so. He's a kid who I knew coming up. He was a young, not 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 me coming up. He was like, you know, looked up to me, these kind of guys. And, and he was a good rapper, technical, and he came to my house, he rapped for me, and he, he came to my show, rapped to me. But now he's he had a big song with the guy, uh, I forgot the guy's name, Jimmy Jimmy something, and, and they blew up, a big song blew up, and it was like, uh, talking about sheep. They had shirts on it, said, ain't no sheep in my circles. And, and he's like, there's a war on religion, there's war on our children, this is war on tradition. That's the, the, the thing about this song. And hey, more power to them, that's their belief. But it's exactly what you just said. It's like, you're talking about no sheep in our circle, but you're saying they're having a war on our tradition. What do you think the tradition is? And the war on our children and war war on our religion. The religion is the sheep, you know? Christianity is something that you followed. And, and trying to not break a tradition of Christianity, that's a sheep mentality. Is it a bad one or a good one? I'm not dissing it. There's a lot of great Christians out there. But to say no sheep in our circle because, you know, you're going through the same uh, narrative that you've been taught, you know, for hundreds of years, they've been taught that. So I don't know. You know, it, it's just diff everybody have dis different perspectives. Are they a good, are they good guys or bad guys for thinking it? No, they, they, they're just people have their own perspectives, you know, so. And it's one of the things about art that like that human beings share. So, you know, like I, I appreciate art from people, especially comedy. Like something about comedy, like I'm able to to appreciate comedy from people that I don't like with I don't like their opinion and I might not even like them. But there's something that I really appreciate about listening to comedians that I couldn't disagree with more because of the fact that it's like the the basis of what they're doing is like taking their 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 views out for you to laugh at. And to like have this bonding about like, these are just my observations. This is how I look at this. And this is why I think it's funny. And like, it's, there's like something about it that makes it, cause like people are not going to agree. And even if we agree in spirit, like I think me and you agree a lot in like on a heart level, you know what I'm saying? There are certain ways we look at certain things that might not be the same, but like because of the bonding that we have in like art, in culture, 
and so many of the experiences we have, it's like a human, like deep, deep love that that art really does allow people to see each other in a really like very uniquely human way. That's really important, especially when, especially in a like culture like where we live, man, or like where we're from. You know what I'm saying? Where people are so different, it's like such a everybody's having a different experience. You know what I'm saying? Like the way that you were talking about John Waters, like that's an experience I don't know anything about. You know what I mean? And so that art, that and talking about perspective as well is that you know mm. me and you, I'm like yo, Ali's my man, and I know that you're you're like this super good person, and, and I got all this love in the world for you. But like if we talked about porn and OnlyFans, I bet your point of view would be completely different. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, porn is good, OnlyFans is good, and you'd be like, no, look, boom, you know. And same with the uh, tradition uh, high res, they'd be like, no, porn is bad, OnlyFans bad, and I would tell you why I think it's good, and people would probably think I'm a piece of garbage, and you know this and that. But we're all coming from, you know, I don't know what the hell I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, man. It, it, no, it's, it's 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 really important. It's one of the beautiful things about, like, man, just art and culture allows that to happen. And in order to appreciate it, you have to know the context. And it's it, and that's one of the crazy things that I also know that we share is that me and you are both raised on. We're raised in black culture, on black culture, in black communities, by black communities. You had your father. I didn't. I didn't have that same kind of bond with my father. But I was basically adopted by these men throughout my life, and so they produce these like these rappers that the world st that white people still look at, and they're like, "Yeah, that guy's like me." You know what I mean? That guy probably agrees with me, and that guy probably feels, you know what I'm saying? And so we have this like experience with also, you know, being in in and of the culture, but then being embraced by all of these people that don't have that. Yeah. And so we clash with them. We have to educate them. You know what I'm saying? There's times where people love us for reasons that we hate. Those are the woke guys, Brother Ali and R.A., and they, they're they woke because yeah. we don't uh, hate black people, I guess. Well, you know, these people are sick in this world right now, you know? Like, the, the shit that you see online, it's like, if you... Uh, if a, if a black man is murdered by a police and you defend, you know, the black man and don't think the cop is a piece of garbage, all of a sudden you're awoke, yeah. uh, you know, terrible. You know, it's like you people are sick, these people, man. Sick world, man. Yeah, sick. Man, one of the things that I heard you say once is like, and I really related to it, it's like we remember the point where, like we remember being young, being into hip hop, you know, and the way that white people treated hip hop in general, treated anybody that was involved in it. But when they saw a, a European American person making rap music or being part of that culture or whatever, just the level of like vitriol and hatred and disrespect that they had. And then we also were there when it switched and suddenly it's like, yeah, man, Limp Bizkit, Eminem, you know what I'm saying? Underground hip hop. And like those Limp Bizkit, Eminem people, suddenly now they're looking at Vinnie Paz and you and me and LP and thinking like, oh, those guys are like me. And like, no, I'm, I'm sorry, we're, this is a very different mooring that we have. Yeah. I discussed it a lot, yeah, coming up, it was like, you know, white, and, and I, I say it often too, is the black community, if you, uh, if you could rhyme your ass off back then, you would go to a house party, you would show up at a show and rock the mic and they would they would embrace you with open arms. Like, oh, he's rocking. 
you know, but it would be the white community be like, you want to do that yeah. N-word music. You think you're black. You're not black. And it will be all these white boys. So you, you N-word lover, you, you, it's like, yo, these people are sick, you know, but brothers would yeah, be yeah. like, yo, he can spit. Yo, he's crazy. Yo, you know, they, they'd accept you way faster than your own kind. And, and then it's like you said, once hip hop became this billion dollar industry, all those same people, you know, and, and their cousins and nephews and uncles came back. Oh, yo, rap music was always, you know, white. What are you talking about? You know, like <laughs> we were always but part of this. Me. Like, <laughs> but also, you had that generational thing, from what I understand, of your dad loving doo wop, loving. You know, what I'm saying when when rock music used to be called race music because they were acknowledging it was black music. They all said it was from the devil and they hated it. And then along comes Elvis and the Rolling Stones, and now suddenly, like. You know what I'm saying? Suddenly rock is white and now we love it. And now it's, you know what I'm saying? So it feels like your dad was able to, like, it feels like you were already raised in that type of understanding before you even. My dad, you know, he, he's funny. He, he's, uh, he, yeah, he was like that. You know, he, he sort of, um, he, uh, he was a city guy and then, um, his mother left and then his father left and, uh, he had some, some relatives in Long Island, his aunt Sue. So he went out to Long mm-hmm. Island when he was about 11 or 12 for, for about three years. And Billy mm-hmm. Joel was one of the younger kids. Uh, don't mark my words for the age or whatever. I don't know what the hell age is, but you know, teenage years or whatever. And uh, mm-hmm. Billy Joel was on the block singing, you know? And, and, you know, singing songs on the block. And my dad like, yo, you're a goofy white kid. You ain't never gonna make it. Go get a job. Go get a job. He was telling Billy Joel. And my dad, my dad was like, oh, I've been wrong so many times in my life. He's like, I've been wrong so many times, son. <laughs> telling Billy Joel to get a job, stop singing. You know, <laughs> crazy. But he told you the same thing too, right? I, I saw an interview where yeah, he, was he did. Like, he said, say, ah, you fat white ass. You know, come on, man. It, <laughs> but he was supportive. He, he, you know, he 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 listened to the raps. He, you know, he supported. Hey, hey, son, you know. But he he said, "Come on, you fat white ass. What you gonna do?" You know. But then, like like he said in, in the interviews, he said after a while, he said, "You know, kid's good." And and that's what he. That's why uh, there's the footage of me not not that long ago when I rocked Apollo finally at the Apollo. Yeah, I was a teenager. And my father had said to me, say, hey, son, you know, you're so good. Because he started seeing it because the neighborhood started talking and everybody started talking. And we, you know, this is before record deals, anything. I, I just walked through the shopping center. People were like, yo, that's the MC. That's the, uh, not MC, rapper. That's the rapper. That's the rapper. And he'd be like, yo. Everybody. And I used to rap everywhere, you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, rap, rap on stages, rap, you know, and I wasn't famous yet, but I was famous, you know, I was neighborhood famous. And my father mm-hmm. said, uh, hey, uh, you know, one day you're going to rock the stage at the Apollo, kid. You're going to rock the Apollo. So he, he turned it around. So then that's why, uh, you know, all my friends, so many of my friends has rocked the Apollo. And I never did. I said, why the f- did I never rock the Apollo? And it felt like the one thing that I didn't give my father. So mm-hmm. when Talib Kweli was in town rocking the Apollo, I, I hit him up. I said, yo, you know. I'd love to come down and rock the Apollo with you. And he hit me back. Donna, his, you know, his assistant, you know Donna, right? Shout out to Donna. Mm-hmm. She, she uh she hit me up and then Talib hit me. They said, yo, come through, of course. So it was like, 
He loves you. And, and, and you know, Phantom of the Beats was there. You know, you know him from UMCs, you, you, you know, Haas G. I, I don't know. I don't like know him, know him, but yeah, of course. Yeah, I that's know my man for years, too. He's, he, and he was okay. like, oh, we've been playing the Apollo since with Tita. What do you mean you never played the Apollo already? Right? What's the big deal? You know, I said, nah, I don't know why. I just never did. But it, but it was a, a mental thing where, like, it, it just felt like for my daddy, you know? So when, when yeah. I walked on a stage at the Apollo, I was just like, damn, like, I did it. That, you know, because in my dad's mind, that was it. You know, I should have did it 25 yeah, years it. earlier, but, but, uh, but yeah. It also shows his of his real understanding of culture that he wasn't like, man, you're gonna be on American Bandstand, you're gonna get it, you're gonna have, you're gonna go number one. It's like, no, if you come into a black cultural art form and then you get to the mecca of that art form and you're on that stage, that's how you'll know. But basically saying like, when black people decide that you deserve to be on that stage, that's when you'll have made it. That's a dope thing, man. It's very rare for him to have understood that. Yeah, but then you know it's funny. He when rap turned into a white audience he didn't understand that either he thought like you know it's black music still he didn't know that white people listen to rap so when i had mm -hmm. the song out with biggie i tell this story off the good but i figure you'll think it's funny because of that uh we had pagan motorcycle gangs in our house and stuff right so the feds came and they raided the house <laughs> machine guns dogs all of this they handcuffed my father all of this but then they unhandcuffed them. They said, okay, we're going to raid your house. We're going to, you know, put. so they were there all day. And one of the feds was a black guy. <laughs> so my dad said, hey, hey, come here. You listen to rap, right? <laughs> he said, my son got songs with Biggie. You know, so he's bringing the fed, the one black guy. Like, like dad, not every, you know, white people listen to rap too now. Yeah, you know, so he's in the corner with the black fed playing on my tapes. Like, yo, my son's all ready to rugged, man. Yo, yo. <laughs> man, that, that is not going to help. <laughs> like once they hear what you were spitting, especially at that time, man, that is not gonna help. That's wild, man. But they had the phones tapped. They, they, they said, "Look, we know everything. We know where you keep your weed that you're not supposed to have. We know this. We know that." <laughs> so he said, "How do they know all that?" But you know, the feds got their ways. You know, so, yeah. The Travelers Podcast has been sponsored from day one by the Zakat Foundation. Z-A-K-A-T is the pillar of Islam that deals with charitable giving, with giving back. And the Zakat Foundation operates all over the world. It's a Muslim-led organization, but they don't only help Muslims and they don't use the work and the charity to try to convert people or to proselytize. Like it's just enough of an honor and an opportunity to be able to share, both because it means that we have something to share, but then also it just really highlights the interconnected family relationship of the human family. And so Zakat Foundation operates all over the world. They do really, really dope work. They're very creative. They partner with people on the ground. They don't try to come in as this big you know, mega organization with all this money and throw their money around. They really work with the people that are there on the ground. I have tremendous trust for this organization and for the people that work there. 
and it's not just because they sponsor this show. Like I've felt this way about these people for a long time. And I've known so many folks that have done amazing work with them. Shout out to my man, Preacher Moss, the comedian. Uh, if you go to Zakat US, which is how you follow them and check them out on uh, Instagram, Z-A-K-A-T-U-S, you can see really brilliant comedian, one of my dear friends, hopefully we'll have him on soon, Preacher Moss, who uh, is going around and just talking to individuals about what Zakat really means to them. And he's having these dope conversations, and it's really a beautiful thing. But you can also see the work that Zakat Foundation does. So Muslim-led organization, they don't only help Muslims. They're not trying to convert people. You can really trust them. And so even if you're not Muslim, just know that these are people that are really doing very, very creative work to increase the dignity and the livability of life for people all over the world. You can also check out their website, zakatfoundation.org. And just know that you're giving to something that's really dope. So really great way to kind of stave off depression and anxiety and um, to really have a turnaround. You know what I'm saying? If, if you're in a dark spot, if you're feeling constricted, a really good thing to do is to reach out and help other people. And know that, like, for example, with their orphan program, you give 50 bucks a month that really gives all of the needs that somebody is requiring. And 100, all of that $50 goes to the orphan. You know what I'm saying? You give $5 and it gives a hot meal to, to somebody in the world. And all these really dope programs. So check them out, Zakat US on social media or zakatfoundation.org. Much love to Zakat Foundation for supporting these conversations. This episode of The Traveler's Podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy Platform. And when you use our link to sign up with them, which is BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P, dot com slash travelers, you get a 10% discount and we get a commission to support the work that we're doing here and to support you embarking on the journey of therapy and mental health and self-care and wellness and healing and wholeness. You know, this is such an important thing. It's such a, a reality that we are under a tremendous amounts of stress. We're living in what I believe are really unnatural circumstances and situations. So many of us are living these really insular lives where we're separated from extended family and from community. And we've got all these traumas. And I mean, there's a lot going on inside of a human being in general, but we're disconnected from nature and just all of this stuff. And it's really challenging. Um, I'm self-employed and I don't live in America. So those are two major challenges for me accessing mental health and therapy. Uh, so I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts. I won't mention which one, but I was listening to this really dope podcast that went on for a couple of years during the pandemic. And it really gave me a lot of joy. And they talked every week about better help online therapy. And I finally hit this point where I was like, I need to talk to somebody. And so I used the link that I heard on this podcast and I went and signed up. You go and you do a questionnaire with them first. They just talk to you about what's going on in life, what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your mind, what's going on in your body. Like, what would you like to, what's bringing you to therapy? And then you talk to them about what kind of therapist you want. And then you go in the calendar and you schedule your own appointment. After that, you decide, do you want to talk on the phone? Do you want to see each other? It's completely confidential. It's all done on their platform, which is a secure platform. You can do it from anywhere in the world, from the comfort of your own home, car, uh, office, you know what I'm saying, stairwell of your job. Like you can do this joint anywhere where you can find some privacy and a good, you know, connection. 
you just go and do therapy and you schedule it for when you want to. And if you are really feeling your therapist, then you rock with it. If you're not, then you just switch therapists. No extra cost, no questions asked, no hard feelings, no funniness. I recommend this because it's something that I've used and it's really benefited me. So go to BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com. Use that link. Like I said, you'll get a discount. We'll also get something here to help and support the work that we're doing. It's really a win-win for everybody. We're happy to be rocking with BetterHelp. So, man, I hear this. this there's this legendary story of you um, at like a jive music conference. And like, I don't, I don't know how much, you know what I'm saying? You, if you still want to talk about this, but there's a story that, that I've heard, that I've heard, you know, people talk about of you at the jive conference back at the time that you were assigned to the label that, I mean, I've heard people say like, man, that dude started a riot in there. Oh, like, it was a riot. It was a big riot. Yeah. 700 people, man, riot. It was, it was, it was my wild days, you know, but, uh, I thought it was legendary and and uh but the label didn't think so, you know. <laughs> but that was Cuz you're uh, like 18 years old, 19 or something. Like you were young. Yeah, I was young and wild and crazy and the label was with me and uh and it was the days I think it was before Giuliani, so there was like cuz there were still hookers all over the streets, so we we got a bunch of hookers off the streets. Hey, say come with us, you know. So we, you know and uh, came out with a bunch of hookers and and uh, started fights with the people in the crowd. Because there was some kids in the crowd giving us the finger or whatever. And I think my man threw a speaker at his head. And then another one of my boys put his, took, put his ass out and hit somebody in the face with his ass or something. And then, you know, everybody was going crazy. And then, like, yeah, it was a fun night, man. But... uh what was it, Keith Murray and the Fushnikins? It was a jive showcase. And I thought it was mm. I thought it was exciting and great, you know? And then they, but then there was like a side door at the end. They all had pistols, like a Jeep full of dudes with pistols. And my boys, we didn't have weapons. We, we they broke up the couch, like the upstairs. They, there was a couch, so we had like wood blocks in our hands and I'm like, <laughs> crazy. Let's Jail go out there. Let's go out there. Let's get them. And I was I was like, yo, they got. They got pistols though. They might uh, have the upper hand, you know. So, <laughs> but you know, it it was different times. We had a lot of fun though. We 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 uh, it was a brawl. It was a fun brawl. And afterwards, I was like, "Yo, this was uh, this was a legendary night." And my A and R was like, "Yeah, it was. It was." And then the next day, but he he didn't mean it, you know. He I guess he talked to corporate or whatever, and he said. Uh, Yo, man, yo, you you destroyed the whole showcase. And, you know, a tribe called Quest was hosting it. You know, Fife was hosting it. And Funk Master Flex was DJing. And and MTV was uh, in the house filming. Sh you know, I, I always wondered if there was a if some footage of it, you know. But it was a different era where, you know, if it happened now, I'd have a million shots from a million different angles. But, it, you know, back then mm -hmm. it, it wasn't easy to get footage like that, you know, so... And that's like a time when if you were blackballed in the music industry, like that was real. People talk about being canceled, but like being canceled now is like there's a group of people on Twitter that say bad things about you. You know what I'm saying? You can still go directly to your fans. You can still, you know what I'm saying? You can you can move around something like that. I agree mm -hmm. with you mostly because a lot of people will, you know, 
champion behind a canceled person, you know, like I still love them, but uh, mm-hmm. in some cases, uh, people get canceled. I know a screenwriter that was selling scripts for like million, two, two, one million, two million dollars. He was doing great mm-hmm. and everything he was writing was getting financed. And then, you know, Vanity Affair put out a, a, a piece on him with, with like eight or nine of his ex girlfriends. And I mean, they, they destroyed this man's existence. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's, the, and there's no way to defend them because then, oh, you don't believe that this or that, and there's no charges, there's nothing. Right. So it was like, and he just can't work, you know, which is, so So I've seen that happen as well. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I know what you mean. A lot of people, oh, like, like Louis C.K., uh, you know, he's canceled, but then he was playing in Berlin here and the, the Mercedes-Benz you know, stadium sold out, you know, big pack yeah. Mercedes-Benz stadium. He's still making millions of dollars. So how canceled is he? You know, no, he won't get, and I think he just won a Grammy or something or some kind of. Yeah, he was nominated. Something, you know, you know what I mean? So so as canceled as they are, they're not real. Some of them are, yeah, they they lost endorsements. They lost some deals, but they're still able to make like a big, uh, big amount of money. But uh, as far as, but there are some people who really caught the, cancel button that that uh that it's like you know because screenwriting is different it's like uh studios don't want to get involved and and fund something throw 80 million dollars behind a project that might be canceled (laughs) you know yeah this is a different ball game you know so it's crazy when we talk about being canceled like i was around a group of people that you know were canceled in a certain circle and that's like, I wasn't ever put in it or taken out of it. And so I, I wasn't sure, like where, like, where do I stand with all this? But it just made me think about, like, if we think about Paul Robeson was canceled by the U.S. government. Like, they made it so that that man couldn't perform. They took his passport so he couldn't travel. You think about, like, Muhammad Ali was in the height of his career. Jack Johnson. I mean, like, you know... There are there are predecessors to the Rex cancel. Ingram, you know, oh, that was a different mm. era. That's like any, uh, not any, but like a successful black man. Uh, mm-hmm. It was, uh, you know, especially a guy like Jack Johnson that taunted. He knocked, beat up a white guy, screw a white woman, taunt the taunt the white guy, taunt the white people. And so they, they ended that. They they said, nah, you you ain't you you're a criminal. You know, they made up laws, you know, just mm. just to make sure that these guys couldn't travel, you know, or couldn't couldn't do nothing. You know, they turned them into criminals when they weren't criminals. And yeah, uh, who'd you say? You say, oh, Paul Robeson, legendary, iconic hero, one of the great. Yeah. You know, he was a great singer, great actor, great revolutionary. You know, he was one of the greatest men that ever lived, actually. So. Yeah. Well, when I was at your crib, I can't remember if you showed it to me or if I just found it, but I know it was like really just kind of nonchalant. Like I saw Dick Gregory's card, like you had Dick Gregory's card just chilling, like at your crib. No, you know it was crazy. I was on a train, and Dick Gregory hmm. was on the subway, and I said, "Dick Gregory, man, what's up?" He's like, "I said, what you doing in town?" I don't think he even lived in New York at the time anymore. I think he was there, you know, doing press. And uh, I said, you know, you got an email or something? He said, man, take my card, man. I use a phone. You're going to call me if you want to talk to me. So, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so that's why I had Dick Gregory's card. Yeah, that was great. 
he's a great man too. Yeah. So, did you ever meet Mooney? You ever meet Paul Mooney? Yeah, I, I showed him a whole bunch of really racist, weird movies, like or 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 not just racist movies. Some of them weren't racist, but they they were um, just hardcore scenes, like uh, Roger Corman's The Intruder was based on you know a uh, a clan. Uh, Ku Klux Klan member, and and the Klan member was played by William Shatner from Star Trek. So I showed that <laughs> I played that for Paul Mooney, and he said he was oh. like, "Man, I knew Captain Kirk was racist," and and you know, uh, uh, I, I I knew it all along. I I knew it all along. I'm serious. These white people are crazy. Yeah, and uh, they shot it on location with a lot of the racist faces, you know. And uh, it was a great, great movie by Roger Corman, and it's kind of like. Uh, it's you know Roger Corman made hundreds and hundreds of movies and almost every one he made made money you know and he made this really great movie called The Intruder and it was about racism in America and, and uh, Shatner played this horrible white supremacist and it was one out of six movies out of hundreds that he made that didn't make money so he never went back to trying to make a real movie like I mean he made tons of real movies but I mean a dramatic piece you know you know, but it's one of his best films, The Intruder. And, um, but it's like, you look at that today too. It's like, if you go to like, go to like an online, uh, look on YouTube, you know, and you'll mm -hmm. see like, like they'll be discussing stuff like, you know, uh, uh, just content that we f with, you know, and it's like something that's kind of more, uh, I don't know how to say it. Yeah, right, go on to the next subject. I lost I lost a train of thought. I'm getting old and it's eight o'clock here. I've been up since five in the morning with my kids, uh and my son's sick, so I've been uh losing train of thought. Yeah. Yeah, man. How old were you when you first met Biz Marquis? I mean, I, I feel like I've heard that you knew him from the time you were really young. Yeah, I was a little kid. I was about uh my guess would be fourteen. And there's a great interview, the last time I ever talked to him. My album was dropping, so I was doing like all these live. It was during Corona, so I was doing all these live streams on my Instagram. Thank God, I mean. So I said, "Yo, Biz, let's let's do a, a, a IG live." So I did one with you as well, you know. And uh, I got Biz on there, and we got to talk. It was the last time we ever talked, and we talked about the old days and. Me being a little kid, going to his house. I was about 14, 15. He was the first superstar. He was one of my idols. Juice Crew, that, those are all my favorite rappers of all time. And that's Down By Law is your first album that you like memorized? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, MC Shan, Down By Law. It was one of my favorite albums of all time. It was the first one I, I just lyrically was blown away. You know, every bar I, I memorized, you know? And I had rap albums before that that I loved. I had Houdini Escape, I had uh, mm -hmm. Fat Boys, and but but Down by Low was the first one when when it felt lyrical, like it felt like I was doing a lyrical yeah. exercise, you know. So, but yeah, the sort of Juice Crew, and so Biz Markie was like, that was like Michael Jackson to me. That was like you know that like being able to go meet Biz Markie, and I was like fourteen, and and I was just a rap fan that rapped. And there was a guy in my neighborhood called Cap, Capital T, Cap, Capital the Crime Lord. He 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 rapped on Biz's album and Diamond Shell's album, and he was a, he was a Puerto Rican Italian kid. He looked like a white boy, and he was about a year or two old. He was about two years older than me, a year and a half, 
and uh, he took me in. I moved to his school district. I was and and he said, "Yo, I, I I was walking the hallways with an EPMD hat on, and he knew EPMD. I was I was fourteen, but he knew EPMD. So uh, you know, he was from Brentwood, and I, I he said, "Yo, what you got an EPMD hat on?" He, he didn't even know they made EPMD hats, but it, they, they, I ironed on the letters. You know, when you back in the day, you could go to the mall or the yeah. flea market. So I, I had a hat, EPMD. I had them. So I made my own. E, he said, yo, you made your own EPMD hat? So he was clowning me. And Diamond J was in that area too. All of those guys was part of that. You know, Noble Street. Remember when Biz says, uh, hey, yo, Biz, you remember me from Noble Street, Chief? You know, that's my man, yeah. Diamond J's block. They was all there. Dime, uh, uh, Diamond Shell was there too. But um, so Biz, I, I mean, Cap took me to, you know, to around Diamond Shell's house, Biz's house, like they were all around there. And and took me to Charlie Murata's studio, which Charlie Murata had mixed um, or helped produce a lot of the first EPMD songs, a lot of the best mm. EPMD songs, you know. Uh, mm. Your customer, Strictly Business, You Got to Chill, <laughs> a lot of that was Charlie Murata. And, Crazy. Um, and JVC Force, one of my first engineers was, was uh, Kirk Asal, who uh, was, you know, from JVC Force. And it was when I thought rap, I thought if you had a rap album out, you were rich. I thought that at the time, yeah. you know? So I had, the JV, I had the JVC Force album and I was like, I went to Charlie's studio to do sessions and Kirk Asal was my engineer. I said, oh, he just must love music because he's engineering my I didn't realize that he needed the $14 an hour or whatever the f Charlie was paying him. You know, you think a rapper's on a, I have him on my album cover. How the f is he engineering my songs right now? You know, mm -hmm. that was, uh, I think say, say studio was 35 an hour. The engineer was probably getting 14 is my guess, you know? So, yeah. What is, what's the name Crustified Dibs mean? It me. meant nothing. It was, like, I, I was just hanging out trying to think of something to be different because Already the Rugged Man didn't sound, it sounded like a superhero. It sounded dated back then to me, you know? So I was trying to think of something better and I thought of something worse. <laughs> I mean, I get the crustified part, but do you know the DJ Mr. Dibs from Cincinnati? No, I know him, but I was I was Dibs before Dibs, right? I mean, uh, well, I remember when I, I met him. I, I, said, I don't know. I told him, I said, yo, I'm Dibs before you. He was kidding around, you know? But I, I don't know. I don't know. He might have been dibs at the same time, but just not out yet. You know, I know I was out before everybody, but 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 uh, I have no idea. I don't know when he came out with dibs or whatever. So he's a great guy, though. I love him. What? Well, I'm saying, and there's like a there's there's something about you all's like personality, especially in those years, like publicly. There's a lot in common. Like there's a lot of overlap. You know what I mean? With with just kind of that like wild aesthetic and like having a, a reputation for being wild like that. And I just wonder, like, so the word, so I understand crustified, but dibs. Do you mean like I got dibs on that? Yeah, it was like dibs. It was just a, you know, a, a cool word for the time. I think what what Chub Rock kids in the cribs want dibs from the big man. Can he come out? Yeah, Can he come yeah. out? Slam a jam. I'm his number one fan. Yes, I am. So, All these kids realize that I'm the man. Yeah. So I think Dibs is from around that era, you know, when I came up with that terrible name. Yeah. So, <laughs> and everybody told wow. me it was a terrible name, but I was a hard headed 18. Yeah. You, you don't know. It's cool. It's gross. It's the crusty guys. Christopher. You know, 
uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, when you don't listen to nothing because you're a kid and you think you know everything, you know, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Did you have, like, would you say that Biz was a mentor? Like, I know that you were around him, but did he give you guidance? Like when, because I'm saying there, there was a time when it probably looked to everybody, like you're chilling with Big, with, with, uh, Big and Big is bigging you up, and then all the major MCs at that time. Big was a peer. He I, he wasn't a mentor. He was a peer. Like we were the same in my eyes. It wasn't like, you know, he was yeah. like a, he was a couple maybe a year and a half older than me. But like we were getting deals at the same time. Every there was hype around us at the same time. I was never like, oh, this is my my mentor. Uh, Biz was a mentor. Like when I went there, and he would give me say, hey, you should try this. You should. He would tell me, you know. And uh, Eric Sermon was a mentor. Those were mentor types, you know. Uh, uh, and they had already proven themselves at that time. Big didn't prove himself. I didn't prove myself. We just knew, we just knew we could rap really good, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Akinelli, uh, I looked at more like a mentor than Big even, you know, even though he was close to a peer, Ak was kind of, I don't know, Ak was our age though too. I don't know why I would say that, but it just felt that way to me. Uh, maybe because he was out already and had like these, these, this projects that we really looked up to, you know, and Red Man was in the area. Uh, K Solo was in the same area. K Solo was around in the same studios, um, and and K Solo was a crazy storyteller. And then Red Man started getting hype, and he was rolling with Biz too. Biz was putting everybody on, you know. Hey, look at Granddaddy, are you rest in peace? He just passed away. Rest in peace. Yeah, yeah. He was a Hempstead, Long Island guy. But uh, Biz was just, a, and Diamond Shell as well. Diamond Shell had a, had records out. But Biz would just be, you, you know, the, the one advice I say Biz gave me was where, you know, Public Enemy was doing all these, these you know, Public Enemy made those beats, a million samples, beats, drums, noise, you know, extreme excitement in the tracks. So one of the first demos that I brought to Biz, he said, yo, you know you rhyme so dope, but you gotta you need quieter beats. You you doing too much with mm. your beats. Because uh, because he's like, you gotta you rhyme so good, they should hear the way you rhyming. You need space. Like your beats need more space. Yeah, well, that wasn't a term back then, really, you know. Now I hear people say the space thing, but like, you know, he just said you need quieter beats, but he meant mm. space, exactly what you're mm. saying. But uh he said, you got to let them hear you rhyme. He said, when the beats are, uh, you know, got all the noises going on, that's if you can't rap, I understand it, but you you rap too good for that. And I said, oh, all right, right. And again, I don't even think I listened to him. You know, it was the stubborn years, you know. <laughs> Still stuck, stuck with the loud beats for a while, you know, and then. Yeah. So when your peers are and your and your players are your friends, like Redman said that you're like the sickest twisted flow doctor or something like like he has a flow lyricist yeah, he said that he said that when he was in his prime he said that and i think he gave me that quote in what 92 or three or no no i think 94 94 he said most sickest twisted horrible horrifying terror the tracks he's ever heard you know but uh but so then when those when those dudes that are like you're with them that you're their peer they're accepting you they're bigging you up they're happy to be on joints with you and then they go on and make big hit records and you're blackballed 
like where do you get like who's the person that's giving you is it Akinelli or like who's giving you the game that like hey man you could still you could still have an amazing career like in this lane that you're cre you're creating something that people don't understand yet but like who's the per like I know that for me the whole industry understood it at the time mm. I got I got denied mm. they all knew that I was like this incredible MC and everybody respected me and any because at the time it was different it wasn't it wasn't at the internet time and people didn't have studios all in their houses and shit, you know so when mm. you went to the studio there'd be rappers A and R's everybody would be there everybody would be in the studio so when you walked in and everybody went in the booth. And then when you went in, everybody went crazy. All the record label people, like the whole industry, it, it all got got out. Yeah, everybody knew it, right? You know. And then everybody talked, talked, talked. So um, it was like people, the industry knew it, but then it was behavior, you know. And my father mm -hmm. used to say this too. He was like, you know, kid, it's the same shit when you was in school. He was like, your grades were good, your behavior. It was always your behavior kid <laughs> and and that was it with the game too it was like my music they all knew that i was good at what i did it was the behavior so um you know but i'm saying who like where did you get the like how did you know that you if you would keep going that it could still work out for you like how did you not feel i didn't it was a different time so i actually didn't think it was gonna because mm. you know when they blackballed you at the time, there was no internet. There was no, you know, uh, right. there was no way to really do it on your own back then. You needed financing and the right. You needed to do it with somebody, or you needed big money. So I really didn't know what to do. I didn't know what the hell was going to happen. I was scared. I was insecure, and I thought, you know, and plus it was a different time where. Rappers weren't 50 years old or 50. There wasn't no 50-year-old Jay-Z's or 45-year-old right. Nas's. That wasn't existing. And in fact, you know, Master Ace had did the Sitting on Chrome album and I was listening to it and he was like, I'm 23. I was like, holy shit, 23? You know, if you were 20, Chuck was what, 25? Those were old ages back then. Now that if you're that age, you're young. But... Rap was Rakim wrote Payton Full in high school. LL was 16. Like all the biggest rappers were teenagers, you know. And if you were like a little older, you were 20. So, right. you know, when you're blackballed at 20 years old and then 21 and 22, you're like, what the fuck? Did I commit suicide? I got no future. It's the only thing I'm good at. There's nothing for me. They, they, they don't want me in this and I have no way to survive. And yeah, I didn't know, you know, and then something came up where the independent vinyl game started, you know, and there was a couple people said, hey, you know, people put you on the underground. I'm like, yeah, but I'm a mainstream because I had all the bidding wars and all the I like all my friends were huge. Mob Deep blew up all these, you know, whoever the fuck it was, name all of them. They all were huge. And I was the only yeah. one that wasn't. And, and uh, yeah, everybody from my coast, everybody I knew personally, all had huge situations. And I just didn't think, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm done. You know, I, I could wrap my ass off, but what I can't do anything with it. So, uh, but then the vinyl game happened. And people said, oh, you know, you're fucked up in the game, but... You know, people in Japan will buy some copies. This will buy some copies. So 
there was a thing where you, you know, and plus the rappers still fooled me. The game didn't fool me, right, but the rappers. Right, 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 right. Havoc would let me go in his studio before he got there, and I'd, he'd let me record for like I don't even know if he remembers this, but but I tell this story often where like they used to do Mob Deep when they were you know they had after Shook ones they generated so much money for Loud, and I think I think Hell on Earth had a million dollar budget the the uh, album. Don't mark my words on it a hundred percent, but it was like a big big budget, and they used to do lockouts at the studio, you know, from twelve to twelve. And you know, okay. Havoc would show up three, four in the afternoon. You know, uh, P would come after Havoc made the beat, and you know, by midnight they'd have a song. You know, or or you know, so but the the engineer Mario would be sitting there at noon, and nobody's there. So I said, Yo, have you? I come through before you guys get there. And he's sure. So I used to try to sneak in and work with the engineer at noon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because he was getting paid for not doing shit. So, so, you know, sometimes they'd let me record some rhymes and shit because I was broke. And, and uh, you know, but then I'd be able to go and press some vinyls, you know. Uh, I'd take the reels, I'd go mix it at Dave Rock and Reel, rest in peace, or, or wherever I'd be able to mix it. And, uh, you know, they'd press up you know, bunch of vinyls all over the planet. You know, vinyl was huge back then. And I started getting a little buzz again. And then Raucous happened where it was like, uh, uh, no, this guy at Priority Records was chasing me around. And he said, yo, like, what's the worst that's going to happen? You know, come to me. I'll work it all out for you. And uh, it was like five years later after Jive, if I'm not mistaken, or four years later, finally. And uh, because they, yo, they like after the after the showcase, they wouldn't let me perform anywhere in the country. It was crazy. Like all my shows got canceled. Like it was crazy. And then finally, I think '98, Germany and a couple European, maybe France, let me do some shows out there because I had the buzz from you know all the crazy stuff happening. But America was scared of me. And then uh, even so, so I got a production deal. Uh, signed to a production deal to Priority Records in like the late 90s, like years after that mm. four years of stagnant, disgusting mess where I thought I was just done. And then Raucous did a showcase and I had a meltdown. I got in my drawers and underwear and threw shit and went crazy, but it it, it rocked the crowd. And, and the, the picture in the Village Voice was me with my shirt off looking like a monster. And I was like, rugged man gets rugged. And, and all of a sudden... I was back, uh, wait, that guy uh, did a show, you know? So it slowly just came back, you know? And then and then, 2000s was you guys, you know, looking at the way you guys moved, you know? And it, I was ignorant. I didn't know that, that Brother Ali and idea and atmosphere was real. I didn't know that was real. Uh, you know, I was Mob Deep, Biggie Smalls, New York, you know, I, I'm real hip hop, you know? I didn't know this in the, I didn't know even Jedi mind tricks. I didn't know this was real. I thought that was like the weird fucking thing. Like I told Yeah. Yeah. Like I thought I was, was that's, that's what is this? I didn't even rap. Like I didn't even, like I was so in my own world. I didn't even listen to none of these Aesop rock, all of that. And then 2000s, uh, I, I started, you know, whatever people say, Oh, you know, you know what, you know, the kid Jed, you know, Jed is, 
Jed mm. Rosenberg. He directed some of my videos. He worked on my movie with me. But he was like, yo, you don't know. You, I think you would like Brother Ali. He's like a lyrical ass dude. I was like, I don't know what that shit is, you know? <laughs> you know, like I didn't know what the none of these was, you know? So uh, yeah, I just thought, why wouldn't I know what it is if it's real hip hop? You know what I mean? I was ignorant. And then, uh, you know, but we're talking over 20 years ago, you know? And plus, I was also damaged and hurt from things not going my way. So why am I going to look at your movement, this guy's movement? I'm, I'm a hurt, beat up guy with, with no resources for everybody. You know what I mean? So I, I was closed to a lot of stuff. And then, and then I started, you know, uh, I'd get a show off for here and there. Oh, come open for this guy or open for that guy. In my head, I'm like, I'm way better than that guy. What the fuck I'm opening for? I'm not going to. And then you start, you start going, yo, ego. And you start doing shows with people who you think you're better than. Or you, you think you you have more uh, uh, history than or, or, or more respected than you think, but you're actually not. Because then you go to the shows and they, they have 600 screaming fans and, you know, they don't know who the f*** you even are. So you who the f*** do you think you are, R.A.? You know, you, you're somebody to somebody, but you're not nobody to them. So you start, once you could swallow ego and all of the dumb sh you start learning and being around people and, and and then and then you start listening to their music and understanding other types of hip hop and, and then you realize what well, that's not other type of that's just hip hop period. You know, and then you see mm. people rocking shows and you you start falling back in love with it, like, yo, like those motherfuckers are rocking. That's real sh so, you know, you just gotta open up the blinds when when you're sitting in the dark. And so the two thousands I learned all of that, and that's where where the the re you know, that's where all my biggest success came from after I, I was able to uh, to walk in them doors and, and roll with that world, you know, rather than trying to be part of this this uh, New York Loud Records, Jive Records, Priority Records, Capital Records, record labels. And I even in 93, I, I record, or what was it, 94, I recorded the song with Buck Wow. Every record label sucks. But in the 90s, right. all we knew was record labels. We did yeah. you know, who are these independent underground rappers. Oh, what the fuck is, is that even real? What they couldn't get a record deal? You know, you think you know, there's all yeah, this exactly. bullshit in your head. So uh you know, so it's almost like a walking contradiction. And when you when you not almost it is, you know. So then uh and then you could see like, yo, some of these independent rappers are rapping better than these guys with major deals. And then you go, wait, that guy is rapping way better than the guy with the major deal. Oh, that guy is. So then so then you, you discover the underground and the independent scene and you see what great music's being made from that. And you don't think you're above it. You, you know, you understand like, hey, you know, this is, this is actually where you should be at, you know? And, and I learned, I learned the hard way. I learned everything the hard way. You know, it's like what, what my father said with the Billy Joel thing. Like, I've been wrong so many times in my life. Uh, so many times, you know.
we've been independent since day one of this journey. And it really matters a lot to us because anybody that has the creative gift and calling or even just the ability to speak in a way that touches people and unites people and galvanizes people and really causes them to think and grow and act. It's a really, really powerful thing. It comes from the soul of the person who's offering it. You know, it's a shared thing between the team of people that work on it together. And then it really also is very powerful for the hearts and souls that it resonates with and lands in. And a lot of times community forms around that. And so the second you realize that that's happening, it's like, okay, this is a gift that I really should be dedicating my life to. And if I'm going to do that, then I need to live off of it. And my family needs to live off of it. So then you start thinking about, well, how do I do that? The problem is, or to me, it's a problem that corporations know how powerful that is as well. And out of all of this marketing and ad budgets and all this stuff that they do, you know, that's a creative way of trying to make art that would connect their product to the heart of the consumer. Whereas if they can just make an alliance with an artist who's already doing that, then they don't have to. So it's like, okay, your favorite artist brought to you by whatever, you know what I'm saying? Brought to you by this cell phone company, brought to you by this cigarette company. Uh, you know, they're performing in this big arena that just happens to be named after the insurance company or whatever it is. Like they know the power of that. And it's it's even the case on social media, you know, even for social media uh, influencers, content creators, if that stuff is resonating with people, those social media outlets are also enormous corporations. I mean, it's it's like being part of of an enormous network. And so there's a lot of money involved there. And unfortunately, the conventional wisdom seems to be that you just get the most tonnage of human attention, hours, minutes, seconds, by appealing to the worst common denominator of all human beings, appealing to people's pettiness. There's nobody that's, that doesn't find it yummy to see something petty or to see some violence or to see an argument or to see something they disagree with or see someone they can judge or see someone they lust after or see something that, you know what I'm saying? It really is like the lowest common denominator stuff that these pr platforms are programmed to put that in front of us. You know what I'm saying? And they study how long we look at things and what we zoom in on and what things we click on. And all of this stuff is studied just to deliver us uh, the things that's the stuff that's yummiest to our ego. So you can do something positive, but you better be sexy doing it. You know what I'm saying? It's like the ego has got to have some stake in it. In any case, it's always been really important for us to be independent. And what that requires is a direct connection with you with the people that that listen and that want to support this thing. So I say that to say, go to brotherali.com and there's an area there called join where we have our caravan. Our caravan are, and I don't say this just because it sounds good, it's a real community of supporters, of listeners, um, of subscribers, and we've got different levels and different ways to engage. So there's a $5 level where you you really know that you're supporting the work that we do here and you get the episodes a day early without ad breaks. So like if you're hearing this on Monday, you would have gotten it on Sunday without having to hear this ad. Um, and then we've got a mid-level where those people are doing the Ask Me Anything episodes. Like they're getting special episodes of the podcast just of me chopping it up. 
with them. Like basically they get to be the interviewers and I'm the guest. And we have serious conversations in there. Like there are people that are like, why aren't you doing this? Or like, why did you say that? Or what does this mean? Or what am I supposed to do with this spiritual crisis I'm having? Or like, it's very real. It's not just like, who are your, how'd you get into hip hop? Who are your favorite rappers? Nothing against those questions, but it's like, man, you can hear those anywhere. This is people that are like, why are you not talking about hijabs in Iran? You're a Muslim figure with a platform. Why aren't you talking about that? And like, yeah, I owe an explanation for that. And that's where we do that stuff. Um, you know, there's also uh, digital gift boxes where we give content and give things that, that we produce that it's like, this isn't for sale for the general public. I just want to give this directly to the people that support us and really listen and understand the context of what we're doing. Then we've got the top tier, which is called the Trailblazers. And that's a legit community. I mean, these are we have a 24-7 private Slack channel where we go in there and people leave half hour long, 45 minute long messages about what's going on in their lives. And these are people that wouldn't know each other and really are supporting each other and caring for each other and witnessing each other's major moments and transformations in life. It's a big deal. And then also that top tier, when we put out like these, you know, really exclusive vinyl things, um, you know, I just did a maxi single, three song body of work produced by Ant and Evidence and myself, and we did a really limited run. Those people get it as a gift. And we just did, we're, we're doing right now, actually, our month long, really intensive songwriting workshop called Blood on Beats. Those folks get the opportunity to... Uh, register for free. Like if you want to take the class, you can take the class. You know, it's a really beautiful thing and it's a very genuine connection. So head to brotherali.com. Uh, it doesn't cost anything to sign the mailing list. That's step one. But then check out the website. Look at the, we've got write-ups about everything in my catalog. There's videos to watch. There's all sorts of things to do. There are forms if you want to request a beat or a verse or a lecture or an appearance or a show there's ways to do, or an interview, like there's ways to do all of that. Somebody just hit me up, a really dope comedian that I didn't know just hit me up on there and is saying like, hey, I want to be on your podcast. That's the first time it's ever happened. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to have him on because he sent some of his work. I'm like, oh, this guy is really funny. So head to brotherali.com, sign the mailing list, go to the join section, get in where you fit in, and let's keep this connection real. What, when did you start to, like, there, there was a point where your music started to change, and I wonder if it's related to the independent thing, like being independent and, like, dealing directly with your fans without a label anymore, but there's, like, a point where you really started still being wild, still being the, you know, crustified dibs thing, but you started, like, really pouring your heart out and, and showing, like, your, like, who you are as a human underneath all of that. Yeah, um... Yeah, uh, I think the f the first time. Well, I don't know about that because even every record label sucks. I was going there, like you could hear traces mm. of it. Like you could hear the pain, mm. and then, and then there was some of the. It was more like, it was very personal. Like even Smith Haven Mall. Oh, look at this in the mirror. It's it's ugly and painful. It's a man in pain, and you mm. can hear the pain, and you can feel like, oh, this is coming from this guy. But I know what you mean. Like where, where I think it was the life. The way where my life and my mind went, where it turned from it doesn't have to be negative. It doesn't have to be I hate you. I hate everybody. 
you the world. Right. I mean, there's a like on Legends Never Die, like we hear you spit that rhyme for the first time about your beloved father and like your voice cracks and it's like you're trying to get it all out before you start crying. And then the, I heard that the the engineer made you keep that particular take. And like, I don't know if we would have heard that in 92. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no, definitely not. Definitely not. No, you're 100. Well, here's the thing, too. In life, I wouldn't cry, you know? And, and honestly, I hadn't cried. There was a time I was going to funerals. I think there was like a 10 or 12 years straight where I'd never cried at all. And, you know, man, I'm a man. You know, I don't cry, you know? And then uh, I cried uh, at a... a, a you know, I cried, and then after that, you know, I cry all the time now, like a bitch, I'm always crying, you know. But uh, <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, if you're too stubborn even crying in real life, how the hell are you gonna put it out on, put it on a record? So you got to change, you know, your, your worldview before you could, you know, and 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 also, yes, you know, uh, feeling secure as a man to put it all out there, you know, because you got to understand it was, uh, we were from that macho era, you know, we were ignorant and macho and we were, we were, we were a man's man, you know, rugged man, you know? So, so yeah, it took time to be able to say, nah, you got, you, you can put it all out there. So the one thing I'll tell you oh, where, where things switched, the quality where uh, you could hear a musical quality differences where uh, I finally, you know, started getting more money from from working where I was able to take my money from shows, nonstop shows and put it back into the albums where the mixes would sound good or if things were lacking, I'd be able to get live musicians on it or if things were lacking, I'd be able to replace you know, this, that, and then get the proper mastering. And I'd be able to sit in the, if the hook wasn't right, I'd be able to sit in the studio until the hook was right. And like, I didn't have that back in the day. It was like, you had three hours to make the beat, rap, rap to the beat, uh, mix the beat, and the song was done. So, you know, and you didn't have money to go back and rework on it. So there's so many things from my past work where, you know, not the last couple decades, but like in the beginning where you go, damn, like that that's, song sucks to me, you know? But my fans love it, but it's, uh, it's, or some of them, but like I listen to it and I'm like, damn, like if I had time to sit with that record, I could have made it special. So right now, you know, there was a place in my musical career where you could hear a quality difference. And that's what makes me happy where like, I know like, yo, when I listen back, I'm, I'm listening to the good things in it. Like, damn, like yeah, we yeah. really went, went there. Like we, we sat there and yeah. you hear all the cool sounds all the cool arrangements, all the cool, you know, uh, uh, audio things we did, you know, or vocal things we did for choruses and, and the way we had this set up and build up to make the, this come in harder for the show. Like, like I, I see all the hard work we put into so many of the records now when I hear it. And and when they come on, it's sometimes like, damn, that, that one's hard to top, all right? You did a good job on that. Where a lot of the old stuff I listened to, I'm like, oh, man, we could have, that could have been so much better, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. You didn't have the experience or the time or the money to, to really... The time and the money, not nah, not. Nah. If it, I, I did have a lot of musical experience through my young years, like I really, the first ten mm -hmm. years I did have a lot, and I knew like I knew things I wanted to do, 
that I knew I mm-hmm. just didn't have time to do. So I, I, I think, you know, if I had the time and money and, and able to sit down, uh, in the, in the late nineties, the early nineties, I had time, like every record label sucks. And some of those records, I, I like the way they sound. Uh, but you know, I think uh, as a whole, you know, where whole projects sound perfect to me, at least, you know, where I feel good about the project. I'm not saying it's perfect to the rest of the world, but where when I put it on, I'm like, wow, everything works really good for my ears. You know, I'm happy with this, you know, so. One of the things, so like you're you're one of my, I'm from Minnesota, you know what I'm saying? And I know Atmosphere got offers from labels and things like that, but them being the leaders of our movement, they did they took those meetings. I never did. So I never have had a, I've never been courted by a label. I've never had any of that. I came in always going directly to fans and knowing that those were the people. But, you know, the people that I know that started out messing with the industry, people like you and Evidence that were like in very traditional hip hop spaces where there was a record label that was writing the check. When they switched over from the record label writing the check to the people writing the check directly, like now the people, how much I respond and relate to the people, that's what's rewarding me now. And those people respond more when you show them your heart or show them your vulnerable side. So that's one of the observations that I had that I wanted to ask you, like, do you think another part of it in terms of your writing was like, man, if I if I cry on a record, someone's gonna tattoo it on themselves. You know what I'm saying? It's different than like if I hit the, the if I spit the hardest rhyme, I might get a quotable in the source. Nah, nah. I never think like that. I, I kind of just make mm. the songs to make myself feel like I did myself right, you know? Like mm. I'm weird. Mm. Like I always think about I'm always thinking about death. And it's like when I'm dead, will I be happy that this exists? <laughs> you know, so I never think like, well, if I do this, fans will respond. Like, I never do that. I'm kind of like, because also you think like fans turn on you sometimes. Fans do this. Fans mm. don't respond to mm. something that you love. That's right. Like, you can make a song that you yeah. love and the fans won't respond. So I think if you're yeah. digging through looking for fans to respond, maybe it backfires or maybe it doesn't. No, that's not true either. There's a lot of people who know how to play the knobs of their fans, you know, and, and play their fans the way they want them to. Now, you know, you know, what's funny about atmosphere. Another story is, is the same thing. It's like what I was talking about before, how, like, I didn't know who you guys were or know your movements or know the music properly until later, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. was atmosphere. I do every, I, I'm not sure if I ever said this in an interview, but I've definitely, maybe I told him a slug, but, I've always I heard their names from beautiful girls, like that's, that's, <laughs> that's how I right. knew who they was, and it'd be like a hot, hot ass college girl, like you don't know who Slug from Atmosphere is, and I'd be like, that guy, who the fuck is that? From slug, I don't know what the, a Slug from Atmosphere is, you know. I'm talking about 25 <laughs> years ago, you know, maybe even longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm crustified dibs, you know, and I'm like, what the fuck is that? Right. Slug from atmosphere. And be the hottest bitches. Slug from atmosphere. So I'm sleeping on these dudes. Like, I don't know. I don't know. That's I guess that's girl music or something, you know? So uh, you know, so it took me years. And and then and then I listened to some stuff and said, ah, I don't know. It's you know, kind of and and this is before I knew how to be vulnerable myself, as you said, you know, to how when did you so they were doing all that vulnerable shit before anybody. You know, not before anybody, but before a, a large percentage, you know, and uh, 
And, you know, I'm like, what's it? Like, what's it, emo rap? Is that what it is? I don't know what it is. You know, so I didn't pay, pay attention, you know? And then, uh, and then I, I, you know, Slug, when I met him, he was such a nice guy. And then we just connected as, as, oh, nice guy. I like him, you know, cool guy. So I listened to the music. Yeah. So I started understanding the music a little more now, you know? And then, when I seen him rock a show, I was like, yo, it don't get any more hip hop than that. that. It doesn't get any more hip hop than that. Like, that's right. So, yeah. you know, you could, you could put your blinders on for everything and just never see it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you open up, you get to see great, sh- you get to see great artists and greatness. So, and then I, I have just this, this high, res- high level of respect for the guy now, you know, for the group, you know? Uh, seeing them rock, rock a crowd. And one of the shows I seen uh, uh, Slug was, um, it was at a college in Canada. And I tell this story often when I'm with him, but uh, where I had a show in Canada the same night, you know, and I'm the underground legend. And all these guys say I'm the legend. And nobody was at my fucking show. <laughs> you know, the whole college was, you know, it was like, in fact, atmosphere had outsold Lauren Hill, Ice Cube, and it was another huge name. They had outsold every rapper that ever went there. It was the biggest uh, rap show that had showed up at that college in Canada at that time. And I was like, oh my God, Jesus. So uh, yeah, yeah, they had impressed me, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy, man. It's crazy how many underground things are you know, a lot of times we, that what we're always told being underground or being independent is like, well, that's not what people want. You're not doing giving people. But so many times the numbers just tell a very, very different story. Yeah. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you the first, my first like eye opener was, it was, uh, I did a show with Raekwon and G-Rap. And now, was this in the 90s or 2000s? I don't remember when it was. But it was pretty early, you know. It was definitely twenty. It was probably twenty years ago, you know. So Raekwon, Wu Tang was still a big deal. I mean, he still is. But you know, what I mean, but twenty years ago, even closer to their prime. And uh, G Rap, the legendary icon, and we did a show. It was about six hundred fifty people. It was, it was Raekwon, Cool G Rap, and me. Six hundred fifty people. You know, all right. And then, like a week a week later. They put me on some bill with Aesop Rock in Colorado. So it was Aesop Rock and me, right, opening for Aesop. I think it was like 1,200 people. And I was like, yo, Raekwon, Koozie Rap and me did half the numbers of this guy. <laughs> that was like, how the fuck is that possible? You know, Aesop, like, you know, so so that that was the beginning of opening up my eyes and learning that, no, that, that, that that New York, which you know, Raekwon, Coogee Rap, that's not, you know, there's other shit going on that you know nothing about. And Aesop Rock mm-hmm. was was uh, was was one of the open, eye-openers for me, like 12, and it, maybe the numbers are wrong, maybe 1,000, or but I know it was close to whatever the F it was, it was double, close to double whatever the hell Raekwon, Coogee Rap, R.A. did, you know, so... You know, one of the things that's that's it's strange though. It's a tough nut for us to crack, even for atmosphere, is Europe. Like Europe has not embraced us. Like you know, Europe is really big on like a tra- there's a traditional like you know DJ Premier is the Rosetta Stone as he should be. 
you know what I'm saying, Europe. So like you being in Berlin, I th you came out one time when I was in Berlin and nobody was at my show. You know what I'm saying? And it's, it, like Europe is a thing where like, it's strange. Like they have not embraced us the same way. You know what I mean? That thing has not happened in Europe. And I don't know if it ever will. But what is, like, how do you understand or like, what's your relationship with the the listeners and the circle in Europe? And like, where is it at now? Um, well, there's also, you know, a lot of European countries, you know, you have people who love the classic, classic stuff. But um, there's also a lot of people gravitating towards the same language MCs as their country now. Like, you know, mm. when uh, I think a decade ago and even er way earlier, obviously, it was something that they liked because it was from another country, you know? they You know, if you brought mm. New York MCs to France, it was like the biggest event, you know, or brought, you know, so-and-so to, to a European country or, or not just European, South American country, here, there, you know, wherever. It was the big thing. But I think they're so used to rappers going through their countries now that, uh, you know, the kids want to hear people who talk and look like them, you know? So a lot of, lot of, I, I hear a lot of that's going on. And like, um, like I know this girl, uh, Juju, who, uh, and Nora, they had a group called Sexton in Germany. And right before they, they blew, did good for themselves, you know, they'd come hang out, have dinner, and uh, at the karaoke, uh, the open mic spot, the dudes there, the, the, the lyricist, the lyricist at the German spot, wouldn't even let them grab the mic. And then uh, <laughs> they put out some videos, and now the one girl is playing the Mercedes Benz Arena, packing the Mercedes Benz Arena, you know, all German spoken uh, lyricists. And also, uh, cool Savas and Sammy Deluxe and and who's the other guy? Sido, Sido. When they play, they're they're like old school uh, German MCs. When they play out here, like I went to one of their shows like right before Corona, and it was like I think like eighteen hundred, eighteen thousand people there, packed out. It was crazy. And another one with Sammy Deluxe was packed out. So they they definitely support uh, the same language uh, thing, but but also. I'm still selling out shows all over Europe, you know, because it's what you said. Yeah. I'm looked at kind of like a legacy artist to them for some reason, more than more than rhyme sayers or or strange music or like all the all you guys that kick my ass touring in the states. I kind of do better than you guys in Europe still, and they look at me like you know the master race. You know, I'm I'm more with that whole. Uh, array of artists here you know where where we all do great you know so but in in the states um you know tech and them will pack out two thousand people every night you know so yeah man you've been making music for a long time like do you feel like do you feel like you know because you've made classic music do people still you think receive the new music that you make with the same energy well no it's it that's like anything though people um it's a certain time of their life where they they love it the most and you know so i see when there's like a 40 year old promoter they'll 
be playing my tracks, chains and lessons, you know, and if it's a 48 year old promoter, they'll be playing, you know, stuff from the early nineties or this and that, or, uh, you know, or if it's a guy in between those, they'll play raucous ones. Or if it's a young, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I almost could tell somebody's age by the records that they pick that they like from me the most, you know what I mean? So, and then there's the generation I didn't even know who I was till I did the Uncommon Valor with Jedi Mind Tricks. And then after that, they were sold. So they don't even care about anything before that and only want the 2006 stuff after. And, and you know, it all, it all depends, uh, you know, it all depends. I, and, that, well, it's a, it's a, a good sign, though, because um, a lot of times, that's the one thing about not being a, a giant commercial exploded you know, artist is that you keep getting these fan bases from different, like somebody like, like I had a song with Hobson uh, on legends, never died album you was on. And then, you know, a lot of people like, yo, I mm-hmm. never heard of you till Hobson. Hobson's my favorite rapper, Hobson, Hobson, you know, you're okay, cool. You know? So, so that was a, you know, I'm just naming random ones or strange music tech nine or, or torn with ICP, you know, you, you're opening yourself up to all different people and you, you know that's the one thing that's good about being an MC though is that when you're an MC you can rock all right. different arenas so I could come to a Rhyme Sayers event and rock Rhyme Sayers I could go to ICP event and rock Insane Clown Posse I could go do five shows with Karis One in Europe and and, and I'm the real hip hop scene I could do whatever the, the scene is I could do a rock crowd because that's what our job is to MC and and play the energy mm-hmm. towards the the uh, the the adventure at you know I could do a, a German MC uh, party and come and rock it you know it's like so um yeah it's 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 a nice nice little challenge you know to uh, be able to go from generation to generation to camp to camp and just do do different things for different uh different people you know so. There's people who just discovered me on the last album. They go, oh, I never heard of you until this. And they, wow, I've been, you know, ever since. I mean, that that thing was like a, a real testament, man. I really feel like, you, in my opinion, your last two albums are your best ones. Like, I, I think all your music is dope. But, man, that that Legends Never Die and All My Heroes Are Dead, to me, like, if somebody wanted to know who you are, like, I think those two albums are the ones to well, go to. Well, those are the ones where I got 100% freedom of just working in the studio and doing what I wanted to. And and like I said, working, you know, if this song's not strong enough or big enough, I was able to bring in different musicians. And and also, it's a different era too, where like, uh, you know what? I need a bassist. Get this bassist from California. Oh, I need a flute. Get that flute player from from Czech Republic. Get you know, so you could get elements that you need. Oh, I need a haunting vocalist. Oh, the girl in Iceland. Go ahead, grab you know, send it out to her. So it's another way you can make records and get music from all over the planet. I got a million things I, I want to ask you, but man, you've been so um, just generous with your time as always. Um, I know January 7th is coming up, so we'll be thinking about you. And um, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, that, that's it's one thing. Like, I, I really wish I could have met your dad. Like, just watching videos, like, you know, I see you and him and him and you so much. Like, your voices are the same. You know what I'm saying? Like, he just looks like a 20-year-old, 20 20-year-older 20 version of you. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah, the icon. Of, and, and like I said on the song, my daughter was born the day he died. Not the same day, but the birth, you know, his death day, January 7th is yeah. the yeah. birthday of my daughter. It was like a gift from my daddy, you know, crazy. So, yeah. Yeah, man. And that story, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll mention it in the intro and outro, but for people that, that, you know, you've told that story so many times, I didn't want to have you ask you to rehash it again, but it's really powerful, man. It's it's really powerful. And, you know, it's it's interesting on one of your joints, I heard him say that, you know, people in that time when he was coming up, they were saying, make love, not war. And like the whole thing between love and war. And he's like, I've done both. I went and I did war and he really did it. So like people should go and, and look up that story. But then he said, after that, I came back and did the love thing and having a family. And I realized that making love is a lot harder than making war. Yeah, yeah. And I just wonder, like, like you know what I'm saying, that you have lived this life as a, you know what I'm saying, a, a street warrior, hip-hop road warrior, like all of that, all of the battles that you fought. And now, you know, coming into raising children and having a family, you know what I'm saying, I wonder, like, what's your reflection on that? Well, my dad's... Uh... You know, you know the story. So he lost, he lost his children. You know, so uh, my my, uh, you know, me and the mother, of my kids, Rini, she's great, but we have our downs a lot. You know, we we fight a lot and we try to work it out, but then our personalities, it's just rough. We have rough times. So, but we, we try to. So you know, yeah, the making love part is tough, but um. But it's nowhere near my daddy's, you know, because he, he, like, like you know, he, he, my sister couldn't walk or talk; she died. My brother couldn't walk or talk; he was blind; he died. My sister's son died. So when you, you know, it's something that no human being should ever see is 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 burying their own child. So my father buried two of his kids and his grandkids. So you know, that's much harder than war. There's nothing worse. Uh, imaginable and burying your own children no matter what so uh nothing you, you know you you'd rather get your limbs cut off you'd rather be castrated whatever it is you'd rather have that than have your children be buried so so yeah so he his his make love part wasn't so easy you know so yeah man well i i just really admire you beyond words man and i love you and i appreciate you and thank you for doing this. It means a lot. Like you're one of the people that when we decided to do this podcast, I'm like, man, wait till they hear what RA is like. You know what I'm saying? Like you're the people that I love the most are the people that are amazing on the mic. But then when you are with them in real life, it's like that person on the mic is just one part of who this beautiful human being is. So like those days that we were walking around New York, I remember we had a um, we had like you had gotten props for the video, like literal props. And uh, there was like a styrofoam cinder block. Yeah, and yeah. And so you were walking around New York, like tossing it to people and just watching these people freak out. And I met, you threw it at a cop. <laughs> <laughs> and the cop was like, what the f***? Like you could tell he got mad for a second, but then you were laughing. And I was like, yo, this is this could go bad. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the cop for a second, like he looked like he, he didn't know what to do. And he, you just, like, your whole vibe just disarmed him so much that he started laughing and you were just like, oh, come on, brother. That was amazing. And then we hung out in Brooklyn and you were trying to get Hasidic Jews to say hello to us. <laughs> like, man, it was just, that That was so much fun, man. Like, that was, a, that was a good time. And then the way that the song and the video and all that came out. The video out. did good, too, man. And, and Ace, Ace 
you know, looks great. You look great. And the video did really good. A lot of people watched it. It was before, before it was when YouTube still kind of had the videos and the algorithms where it just kind of let whatever fly fly. It really went, it really did good. That one for, you know, it, you know, we didn't spend much. We, we had one cinematographer and one location and we, we lit it beautifully and, and, and we did good with it, man. Yeah, and I mean, you really like your eye and understanding of film, like really comes through in those moments, man. I can't wait until I know there's going to be a moment where you'll have the opportunity to really, you know, direct some sort of feature, man. I can't wait. I know that's going to be crazy. Well, I just finished the script that I'm planning on making, but it's uh, the problem is, is a lot of my ideas start off commercial, you know, like wow, this is kind of like a sellable commercial idea, you know. And then mm-hmm. while it, when I start writing it, when it when I play it too straight, it bores me, you know, and I don't want to write it. So I always ruin these really, you know, sellable. Like, damn, if I write this straight, I could sell this to a studio probably. But when I'm writing it, I want to make it, and so I start adding all these ridiculously <laughs> unneeded, you know, left field places for it to go. And so I just finished one that really is left field. Like, I don't even know. And I'm, I'm, I'm just finishing up. I want to send it to my guy and uh, get his input and see what he says about it. Because I didn't, I didn't read it for nobody yet, but I'm kind of really excited about it. And I'm thinking after I do my next tour, I might go finance it myself and do it. You know? That'd be dope, man. I'm saying like, you know, I'm not a film person. I, I, I'm partially blind, so like... You know, that's just not a medium that really speaks to me. But I know when I see something that's dope, you know what I mean? And I, when I was with you and saw you working on that and saw just like, man, it literally was such a shoestring budget. There was only like one or two people there. And, but I could, I, it, it had the feeling of being in the studio with someone making music that really knows what they're doing and knows how to get the best out of whatever this situation is, whatever is happening. I think there was a, um, I think you just happened to, go upstairs one time we were taking a break and you like yo there's this whole thing of the roof is ill like we got to shoot on the roof and so we ended up going on the roof and you know did some things that were not in the plan and it just had the feeling of being in the studio with somebody who really has a gift for it and so i i think i can't wait to see what that looks like man oh yo um on the flip side i know you don't like to give yourself no props uh if 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 it's cool we mention it uh, Brother Ali gave a f- amazing, amazing verse. Uh, spit an amazing verse for Afro's album. That shit was incredible. I loved it. Loved it. Yeah, man. I'm sorry to have to to make you wait for that. Like I was on tour and all this stuff, and I finally got back to Istanbul, and I sat in this chair with this mic, and I was like, I'm recording. I'm writing and recording this thing right now. So, yeah, man. It's 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 dope that um, I love seeing you know you mentoring artists too. You know, like take, taking them on the road and giving them opportunities, producing their records. It's, it's really dope, man. It's one of the it's one of the real true signs of somebody who was raised well is that they they pay it forward and they, you know, care for others and help others develop. All right. Love you, man. Peace, peace. All right, bro. Special thanks to my dear brother, my friend, Ari the Rugged Man, for being so generous with his time, with his wisdom, with his energy and his insights, and for just being so vulnerable. He had a long day as a dad, 
and um, was out running around taking care of sick kids and in another country, you know what I'm saying, in Germany. So I live in another country and I know that when you're running errands, it's already can be cumbersome and it already can be draining and things like that. But when you're also dealing with a language barrier, you're in another country, all that stuff, he put in a long day of loving and serving his family and then just sat down on his bed with us and chopped it up and that was a conversation that you just heard. So really grateful to RA and also thank you to his family for giving him that space and time. We are brought to you as always by the Zakat Foundation, Z-A-K-A-T-U-S on Instagram and zakatfoundation.org. Check out all the work, find a way to get down with what they're doing. We're also brought to you by BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P slash travelers. That's online therapy. You know what I'm saying? Get a chance to to just give yourself a little bit of time to be with yourself. You know what I'm saying? Give me myself to be with myself. You know what I mean? It's, it's a really beautiful, important thing to do. doesn't mean you're crazy. It means you're, you're normal. It means that you're alive. It means that you're human. It means that your heart is alive. And it means that your heart matters enough to you to explore it, to have that knowledge of self, to know thyself. Word up, betterhelp.com slash travelers. Special thanks as always to Amna Mirza, Mansur, Panawala, Darian, Washington. Shout out to my man, Sage Francis, to Shane Atkinson. Shout out to Imam Fahim Shuaib, the people that listen to this podcast, Aida Rashid, and give me feedback. It really matters a lot. Uh, shout out to Last Word, who does the graphic design. Shout out to my man, Ant, who made the theme song from the original song, The Travelers, on the Us album. 2009, go and check out that actual song. And he allowed us to use that that beat as the theme song for the podcast. Man, shout to Mark from Medina Hip Hop who did the stamp logo. Uh, and Traveler's Podcast is produced by Brendan Kelly, aka BK1, my mellow, my man. And it is a product of Traveler's Media. Love you a lot. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.